You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Brunei is a tiny, wealthy country in Southeast Asia. Yesterday, it implemented a new criminal law that punishes homosexuality with death by stoning. Today on Worldly, we're going to talk about why Brunei passed this awful law, but also how the situation in Brunei plays into a dangerous global narrative about Islam. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jan Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. What's up? Alex, walk us through Brunei 101, right? Most people don't know this country very well. Brunei is a very small country in Southeast Asia. It borders Malaysia and is near Indonesia and the Philippines. To give you an idea of how small it is, it is smaller than D.C. There are about 400,000 to 450,000 people. D.C., for example, has a population of 700,000. And it's uh, smaller, frankly, than Delaware in terms of land size. So this is a very small piece of territory. It is incredibly rich, mostly due to its oil, natural gas exports. It is in a very uh, oil-rich area of the world. And on top of that, it has been run for many years brutally by the sultan who's been in power since the 60s. And his name is Hassan al-Bolkaya. And Bolkaya's government is about as authoritarian as one can get, right? There's one political party. It has sworn loyalty to the monarchy. It is hardcore single-party monarchical governments. But in 2014, it took this religious bet, right? The country's majority Sunni Islam. And Islam is the official religion according to the government and the legal codes and so on. But there's this new criminal code, Jen, that they started floating in 2014. Right. So they had basically two different kinds of law. They had this set of secular criminal laws. And then they had Sharia law. Basically, we'll get into what that is. But for purposes of right now, uh, like Muslim law guidelines for how to live your life and how to run a culture and society, which basically governed family issues, divorce, things like that. And so— in 2014, they announced they were going to basically roll out Sharia to include criminal penalties. So much wider, broader, like all of the criminal code is going to be based on Sharia principles rather than using like English common law as the secular laws had been based on. The, the question, of course, becomes why do you start making this move in 2014? And like you might think that the Sultanate is doing it because they are super— religious and had some kind of conversion. This is not true, as far as we can tell. Yeah, so we'll link to all this in the show notes, but you should know that these are not people who have the moral high ground. I mean, th there are less horrible things about them, although still bad, like they have a yacht that's named Tits, and then there's some really egregious, horrifying 
developments where they hold auditions with women and, and young girls to take part in harems for these people. As young as 15, right? This is yeah. not like yeah. a super devout religious family. It's a group of people, a sultanate that has a tremendous amount of money stemming from oil and gas reserves, and they use it with all of the fucked up power of a bunch of wealthy men who control an entire national economy. So we know that they are not uh, the per most personally devout. personally devout folks. So the, the reason for this law, there are theories. We don't exactly know why, but there are some theories. The first theory is the economy is actually struggling. And even though it isn't, uh, you know, a sultanate and they have absolute control, they still have to rule people. Well, and and by, by struggling, right, we mean like it's an oil economy, right. oil prices fluctuate, and they've been down recently. And so that just makes life more difficult for any country that depends on oil. Exactly right. And this is a very common tactic by authoritarians that when things go badly— you do something nuts to distract public attention. And this is, could be, again, theory one is that this is one of those moves, that this is a way to distract the public and, and be kind of red meat. Theory two is that the sultan is looking uh, for more actual investment from Arab states, conservative Arab states, I should say, and on top Saudi of Saudi Arabia Saudi in particular. Arabia, exactly. And on top of that, maybe some tourism from conservative Muslims. And then theory three is that Brunei is a small country and is not really in the public eye. And so the sultan almost rightfully could have assumed that it was not going – this change was not going to be recognized. Except the law is so profoundly draconian that it would be difficult for the international community not to notice what's going on. It prescribes for any men who are proven under its definition of proof to have had sex with another man, death by stoning. Adultery, punishable, death by stoning. Female uh, homosexuality is punishable by lashes. It is impossibly cruel in terms of the way that it would be implemented. Now, we don't know whether or not these punishments will start to actually take place. Brunei hasn't executed anyone for decades, and uh, the burden of proof is, is reasonably high. Uh, for when you have to to be able to show somebody as running afoul of these criminal punishments for homosexuality. But the gay community in the country, which is already repressed uh, with state sanction, is terrified. I've read a number of articles quoting gay people in Brunei who have fled. A lot of them are fleeing to, to Canada where they're getting asylum because of the persecution. And, and they're, they're horrified. The stories they tell of persecution and of fear in the community since the introduction of this new criminal code in 2014 are, are, are really chilling. So uh, this, this leaves us sort of in two places, right? The first is that there's been this huge international backlash. George Clooney and Elton John particularly right now are leading a campaign to boycott international hotels owned by the Sultanate. And, and that's good, right? Like, I think it is really important that people get angry about this kind of repression of the LGBT community internationally. Like, I'm all for that. At the same time, some of the way that this story is being played and discussed in certain circles, particularly conservative media in the U.S. and Europe, is disturbing. Uh, there's this conflation of Brunei's interpretation of Sharia law with all of Islam's interpretation of Sharia law. I, I want Jen, who is our resident expert on Sharia, to be able to explain actually what it is in some detail. So, Jen, go for it. When we talk about Sharia or Sharia law, um, the word Sharia just means path. It's this roadmap or this path for how to live a pious, good, decent life, and how to establish a society, um, how to run a community in a way that's ethical, in a way that, you know, has social justice, things like that. It's based on a few sources. So, one, the Quran, 
It's also based on the Sunnah and the Hadith. So the Sunnah is like the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, the Hadith are, are sayings and actions that are attributed to him during his life. And then there are some kind of legal tools that we use. I think the best way for for Westerners or for Americans to think about it, it's not this like rule book. There's no Sharia law rule book that you can go to like Barnes & Noble or Amazon pick up. The best way to think about it is like constitutional law. There's there's a constitution, like there's this, this basic document, there's this source material, but then there's like these years and years of history of legal interpretation. And interpretation can change, and people can overrule other people, and society changes, and so interpretations change. So now take that in the United States and just add centuries and centuries of interpretation and much wider than one country, right? Islam spans a huge swath of the world and a huge time span. So so, so just to be clear, it's like legal thinking over time more right. so than codes. Right. It's like legal rulings. We, we have the same thing in Judaism, right? Right. Like we have decades of decades, <laughs> millennia of Talmudic interpretation. Right. There are basically, and I'm not I won't get super, I promise, just stick with me. I'm not going to get super wonky. I won't lose you, I promise. But in Sunni Islam alone, right, there's also Shia Islam and there are other versions of Islam, smaller sects. But in, in Sunni Islam, which is the big majority and the one that, that is relevant here in Brunei, there are four different schools of Islamic jurisprudence, of, of Islamic law. And they kind of range in different types of interpretation, what they prioritize in terms of source material, blah, blah, blah. But you can kind of, as a you know Muslim, which I am, you can kind of pick and choose like which interpretation on any given thing you want. And then there's this whole other issue of like whether you even have to follow any of these or whether as an individual Muslim, you can interpret the source material yourself. There's no official like body in Islam. Uh, that, you know, is like the ruler, like a pope or anything that says, this is what we believe. There's no phone number to call? No, there isn't. 1-800-ALLAH. No, it doesn't work <laughs> that way. Um, <laughs> so basically, when it comes back to, to Brunei here, so this is based on one particular legal ruling, one particular interpretation that is one school among all of these other things. Now, to be clear, in basically every every established school of Sunni jurisprudence, homosexuality is considered a sin, right? Or is considered deviant behavior is considered banned. You're not supposed to do that. That, again, though, doesn't actually mean that every Muslim thinks that or that Islam thinks that, right? Because it's like, how do you even say what Islam thinks? So what you have are countries like you see in Saudi Arabia in particular because they are very powerful and influential in terms of ideology. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. They spent a lot of money to spread their interpretations of Islam. You have governments essentially picking and choosing their own interpretation and then saying this is Sharia. But that doesn't mean that that's what the next guy or the next girl or the next non-gender binary person thinks Sharia is. There are LGBT groups of Muslims that are activists. So, yeah, it's not like Sharia law says this. That doesn't make sense to say that. Right. So I, I want to go from that nuanced view to the way that this is being talked about, this being the Brunei law, in certain places in conservative media. So here is Sean Hannity back in 2014 when Brunei first announced the penal code, talking about what Sharia law is based on this interpretation. 
Now, let me clarify in simple terms what Sharia law is and what some of the punishments are for their so-called crimes. Now, under Sharia law, adultery and homosexuality, well, they're punishable by death, as are false accusations of rape. And in many countries, you need four male eyewitnesses. Women need that to prove rape. Honor killings are allowed, meaning murder is permissible if someone dishonors their family. For example, if a woman dishonors her husband. So that's not correct. That is one interpretation that people and governments in particular and jurists have had of Sharia. That's so disappointing. I always trust Sean Hannity for my Islamic advice. Yeah, you really should. He's a, he's a really top Islamic scholar. But this isn't in the Quran, for example, these punishments, just, just to be clear. Like, if you go read the Quran, it doesn't say, like, if you have gay sex and four Muslims have seen you, then you should be— Like, that's nowhere—you're not going to find that. This comes from interpretations over, again, generations, centuries of people who are trying to figure out how to live decent human lives. This can change. That's the thing about legal interpretations. They change according to the times. But there's this really large and, and pretty powerful movement I've, I've written about, I've reported about this pretty extensively, in the U.S. and in Europe that attempts to portray these extreme, radical, and violent interpretations as the mainstream or even the authentic Islamic interpretation of Sharia law. That's not—none of the sort of pluralism and multiplicity of ideas and interpretive tradition that Jen was just talking about is allowed. It's just straight up, Sharia law is stoning gay people, and that is it. And that means that we should be suspicious of all Muslims in the United States. This is not my conclusion. It is their conclusion. As documented in these writings, some of these people are in the White House right now. John Bolton has very close ties to this movement. Right, and I want people to understand for a second, you may see polls, particularly from, you know, or, or discussed by some of these right-wing media sources, or even on the left, or even in general, in the news, that say— Whatever X percent, 40 percent, I'm just making that up, but whatever percent of Muslims in America believe in Sharia law. Well, that's, again, you're not defining that when they ask those questions. They're not saying, well, what does that mean to you? I am a Muslim. But if someone comes to me and says, hey, do you believe in Sharia? Well, yeah, it's the interpretation of my religion of how I should live my life. But I'm not saying, yes, I think that you should have your left hand cut off if you steal something. So— Conservatives, a lot of times, take this polling to say, look, all these Muslims want to have Sharia law running your country. Conversations like this, oh, I always surprise me, one, because they're wrong, but two, like, you know, religions have theological discussions over time. Like, yeah. they, they, they constantly try to update, and, you know, apps update, so do religions. And what all we're— Sometimes just as frequently. Sometimes just as frequently. And, like, what we're seeing here— is the discussion when it comes to Islam especially is like, oh, no, they, it's just been strict. It's just one way of doing things. And, like, you know, if you are a Christian or a Jew or whatever you are, like, you know that you that, that your faith is, is different than another person's faith, that your interpretations are different than another person's interpretations. The same is true in Islam. same is true when it comes to Sharia. So, like, the fact that there is this movement to kind of pigeonhole Muslims— to believe that they, to make them see that they all believe in this strict, conservative, horrible interpretation is just insane to me. So right. we, we, we're going to take a break now, but we, we want you to come out of the segment uh, understanding two things and holding two tense thoughts in your mind at the same time. The first is that this law in Brunei is absolutely horrific. It's unacceptable. And it can and should be condemned and protested and challenged by the international community. And by Muslims. And by Muslims. The second is that not all Muslims support this. This is not the natural interpretation of Sharia law. It is one interpretation pushed by a conservative 
sultanate that is trying to shore up its power and trying to use that to tar all Muslims is definitionally Islamophobia. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So for elsewhere, we're not going too far from Brunei. We're going to nearby Indonesia. Indonesia is home to Komodo dragons, a giant, giant lizard that lives in part on an island, you guessed it, named Komodo. Now, you might want to go see them there, but pretty soon you may no longer be able to. The government is considering closing Komodo Island to tourists. Why? Because people keep stealing the damn dragons. The fuck? <laughs> All right. So just for, if you guys are trying to, like, picture which one is the Komodo dragon, if you've seen Skyfall, the, the 007 James Bond movie, this is the one in that pit that he gets thrown into. This is the giant-ass lizard that looks almost like the size of, like, a small alligator, right? It has that long tongue that's, like, poisonous, saliva. Uh, there's also not very many of them. There's about 6,000 or so left in the world. About a third of that, roughly, lives on Komodo Island. So the problem is that these things also uh, retail to rich people who want to have, for whatever reason, a gigantic poisonous lizard in their house. Like, you can buy one for about $35,000 on the black market. So the government of Indonesia recently busted up a smuggling ring that had stolen about 40-odd Komodo dragons. And that's a lot if you think about the entire population as being 6,000, right? And so in light of this and, you know, other environmental concerns about Komodo Islands, they're thinking about closing the island to try to save the dragons. Yeah, one, smuggling is bad. Two, it is also true that tourists are ruining the area. The Galapagos Islands, for example, has kind of done something similar like this, or trying to basically keep tourists away to protect the animals, the fauna, the wildlife. But also, like, there actually are security implications of this. Of course, some sometimes it's just rich people being assholes, and the other times it's like these kinds of illicit activities and smuggling actually can fund, like, terrorist groups and whatnot. But... What is most shocking of all of this to me is like, why do you want this damn animal? This animal is so big. It's so dangerous. There's this video from the BBC that I want us to watch. What happens in this video is the, the filming crew from the BBC puts out a bunch of meat. 
Now hopefully it'll start to scent the meat. Yeah, yeah, it has. It's moving in the right direction. They walk like drunk crocodiles, by the way. Like, they, they, they're like, their arms are, their like, legs are just flopping out to the side. The total change in demeanor in this animal, having scented meat, both of them, as they look for the source of food. Look at this. Yeah, so this is interesting. So like the, the video really starts with them kind of like chasing because they clearly smelled the meat and, and the camera crew. And now that they're close to the target, they've slowed down. They've sort of started to, to like congregate. And they may actually be hunting the camera people. Okay, they're coming in, coming in towards me. Watch my back, guys. If you see anything, just let me know. I cannot believe the total change in attitude of this animal. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> he literally has a stick and he's like, no, 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 no. Because the dragon's getting a little too close. Bad giant poisonous lizard. Bad giant poisonous lizard. To a predatory dinosaur. And all of a sudden, they're not just hunting the meat, they're hunting us. I have to say, I really wasn't expecting this. How are you not expecting this? <laughs> Oh, there we go. One of them's going for, they're going for the meat. Oh, there we go. Yeah, he's got the meat. Oh, shit. This is that, like a scene out of Jurassic Park. It when is, they, like, lower actually. the goat. Yeah, to the T-Rex in yeah. the first movie. Yeah, these things look crazy like dragons. Oh. And they're like dinosaurs. Right? So they finally discovered the meat and are no longer hunting the camera crew. They are just ah! ripping into the stuff. Just like tearing at it. I cannot believe I'm this close to them feeding. Wow. So we're, again, going to link to that clip in the show notes so you can watch it. But it's really crazy, and it really just shows how wildly, well, wild and dangerous these creatures are. So, you know, not good as pets. So why did we do this crazy-ass segment? Because it's a PSA. One, do not smuggle things, especially animals. Do not be as fucking stupid to have wild, untamable animals like Komodo dragons in your back pocket. We're going to leave it there uh, with our discussion of a yacht named Tits and then a lengthy exposition about dragons. We think you're ready for Game of Thrones. This is the worst Game of Thrones preparation <laughs> ever. <laughs> I think you meant best. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who found this terrifying clip of Komodo dragons and also produced the whole dang podcast. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review to Worldly, uh, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.